You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens, you can visit our website at citizensbhm.com. So Jesus rose from the dead in 33 AD. That puts about 2,000 years ago. So sometimes when you're reading your Bible, the New Testament, all written in that first century, things can be pretty far away from our understanding. And in this passage, it uses the word Gentile, which means almost nothing to us today. You can go years of your life without hearing the word Gentile in conversation outside of the Bible. But it would be a huge word in this Gentile versus Jew distinction would be a huge cultural thing for the Jews living in the ancient port port city of Ephesus. Tiny Jewish population there. And this Jew-Gentile distinction would define basically all of their life publicly. See, a Jewish Ephesian person in the first century, like all Jews, would call anyone who is ethnically or religiously not Jewish a Gentile. Everybody. Didn't matter if they're from Egypt, North Africa, uh, Ethiopia, Syria, Persia, Samaritans. They were all just the Gentiles. And where the Jews had one true God and followed his laws as spelled out in the Old Testament, Gentiles worshiped many gods. It changed with whatever culture they were from. And they lived lives that the Jews would consider godless, unholy, dirty, something to stay away from. And the Gentiles likewise thought poorly about the Jews. The friction went both ways in Ephesus and in all the towns within the Roman Empire. To, uh, to, man, I struggle with this name, but I got to say it. <laughs> oh, man. If you're just getting to know me, Justin can struggle with a name. Tacitus. Woo, Tacitus. Hey, if we can get over that hill, we ready. Tacitus was a first century Roman historian and senator. He was a big deal. He's considered the most, you know, accurate, the, the, the biggest Roman historian. He lived in this first century, and he wrote this about the Jews. Practices of the Jews are sinister and revolting and have entrenched themselves by their very wickedness. Well, let's see what he thought was wicked. Their stubborn loyalty and ready benevolence towards brother Jews. But the rest of the world, they confront with a hatred reserved for enemies. They will not feed or intermarry with Gentiles. They have introduced the practice of circumcision to show that they're different from others. Converts, Gentile converts to the Jews, adopt the same practices. And the very first lesson they learn is to despise the gods, forsake all their polytheistic religion and shed all feelings of patriotism. They're not Romans or Greeks or any nationality first. They become Christians first. It is a sin to kill an unwanted child. They hold it to be impious or unrighteous to make idols of perishable materials in the likeness of man. For them, the most high and eternal God cannot be portrayed by human hands and will never pass away. And it's wild to see a secular pagan historian pretty accurately describe Jewish ethics and theology 
from the Bible. And it shows that the Bible is this true lived history. It's not made up at all. The secular people are observing it happen all around them. But notice this historian says these practices are evil. He despises them. And this isn't an outlying view. This is the view of the Gentiles of the Jews in every town. But some of his complaints have a ring of truth. It was common belief among first century Jews that the Gentiles were just rabble to burn in hell. It was common practice not to feed a Gentile in need, not to help a Gentile if you found him injured, to not help a Gentile pregnant woman who is struggling because it would help bring another Gentile into the world. It was common practice if a Jew decided to marry a Gentile for that family to host a funeral for the death of that son or daughter to them and to let everyone know they're no longer part of the fam. The same nasty racial ethnic hate was owning both groups of people. The lack of trust, the hate, the revenge, the fear of people being different than them. And so when the gospel breaks loose, when Jesus rises from the dead and the gospel starts ripping through the Roman empire, it's rejected by most. The vast majority of people hear it are like, what, someone rose from the dead? That's crazy, no thanks. But some Jews heard it and said, oh, this is the Messiah. This is who we've been waiting for for thousands of years. This is what the Old Testament's talking about. And they came to believe. And likewise, some of these Gentiles from paganism came to believe too. But suddenly these new Christian Jews, they were thrown out of the synagogues. And suddenly these new Christian Gentiles left paganism and they got thrown out of their communities too. And so you have these two groups of people in Ephesus coming together after generations of hate. And they're tossed into a local church together and they got to make it work because honestly, they're all each other has. They're hated by the communities they're a part of, maybe even persecuted by them, physically in danger. And now they're in a church together, living together, meeting in homes, and they got to make it work. Do you think there was some friction there and some distrust after hating for a couple hundred years? I'd say so. And so that's what Paul is writing about to say the gospel brings us to God, but it also brings us together and it also builds a multi-ethnic church. Because what the only reason these former Jews and Gentiles could make it work is Jesus. There's no secret other way. It's that Jesus is strong enough to take enemies and make them friends of God and become friends with one another. Look with me at verse 13. Look what Paul says. But now you've been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far from God, but now you've been brought near to him through how? The blood of Jesus. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentile into one people 
When in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. God is in the business of bringing people who were far away near to himself. If you wonder what the gospel does and why we talk about it nonstop, it's because I was far away from God, and so were you. But because of the gospel, God has brought you near to himself. We were enemies of God by our sins, both Jews and Gentiles, yet Jesus has made a peace between us and God. See, God is the most inclusive being to ever live. He has never excluded anyone on the basis of their ethnicity, basis of their skin, eye, or hair color. He's never excluded people on their size or ability or talents. But God is also the most exclusive being ever as the Lord only accepts repentant sinners, people who know they're hopeless and helpless to save themselves and turn to Jesus for salvation. He will deny no one who calls upon his name and eagerly gives them the peace bought by the precious blood of Jesus. See, whoever places their faith in Christ's blood on the cross for our sins will receive forgiveness and be brought near to God. And that's how the gospel saves us vertically. That's how God takes lost people, far from God people, and brings them to God. But the gospel does more than heal a vertical relationship. The gospel also heals a horizontal one. God has brought peace between us and God, but he also brings peace that we can have with one another. And Paul mentions this wall of hostility here, and he's referring to a wall called the Soreg. That's another word we don't hear a whole lot. The Soreg was a four foot and a half tall wall that was inside the temple complex in Jerusalem. And the temple complex is where the Jews had built a temple to worship God. And the belief is that God literally dwelled in some way by his presence at the center of this temple as God had promised in the Old Testament. So there was a sanctuary, there was a giant wall for the complex, and Gentiles could come in the giant wall, but then there was this four foot and a half foot tall wall that said, don't come past here. And they posted 13 different keep out signs, so says the historian Josephus. And we've actually found two of the signs. And this is what they said. No foreigner is to enter within the forecourt and the fence wall around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his subsequent death. That is a keep out sign. (laughs) When Paul's talking about this wall of hostility, he has a very clear wall in mind that any Gentile even remotely familiar with Jerusalem or Judaism knows, yeah, they have this fence that says we die if we cross it. The Jews had decided in this era to say, hey, our God's not for them. And they should keep away. They kind of lived with a keep out sign on their chest. And the Gentiles weren't doing any favors. We just talked about Tacitus's view of things. But Jesus broke down this wall of hostility forever. 
When Jesus rose from the dead, he ripped down the signs and kicked in the door and said, every single ethnicity on this planet belongs to God. That salvation is for all people, not just the Jews, not just this person or this person, but all people have equal access to God the Father through the Holy Spirit paid by the blood of Jesus. Jesus rips down these signs and says, no, you're actually going to be in my family from now on. And Jesus says, we're all created by God. We're all created for God. All have sinned and need salvation. And it unites us in Christ's death because all people have sinned. So when Christ dies for sins, suddenly we're united because there's no other way to get salvation. There's no other payment under heaven to be saved by. Suddenly we become aware, hey, we're all human. We've all sinned and we all need this guy. Without Jesus, we're hopeless. So we're united in his death as sinners. But we're also united when he rises from the dead. He says, whoever comes to me will live and be a part of my body now. And it becomes this dramatic redefinition of who we are. As forgiveness is found in Christ alone, how dare we set up walls of hostility now? How dare we set up walls of hostility when God has forgiven us? If God has forgiven you a billion dollars of sin, a billion, think of every sin you've ever committed. If God's forgiven you for all that, how dare we refuse to work through our $20, $100, $1,000 of sin against others or their sins against us? How dare we refuse to work towards reconciliation and forgiveness? How dare we refuse to understand each other? How dare we refuse to listen to each other? The same power that united these Ephesian Christians not to kill each other is the same power that can and does unite us today. It's not two different gods. It's the same God working from Genesis to Revelation and catching us right in the middle. Jesus is not dead, but surely alive. And Jesus bought peace by his blood to make us forgiven people who can forgive. So as people connected to Christ, we can embrace one another as brothers and sisters. Look how Christ did this, how he brought people who hated each other together. Verse 15, and he did this, Jesus, by ending the system of the law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between the Jews and the Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross and our hostility towards each other was put to death. Jesus brought this of peace to you Gentiles who are far away from him, and peace to the Jews who were near. Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. The law given to the Jews was to guide them in holiness, to guard them from evil, to teach them about God, but also expose their need for God, that they could never live up. And in that way, point them to the coming Jesus. But too often, especially the Jewish leaders, use the law to hate the Gentiles. They wielded God's word as a weapon. 
They used it to justify themselves before God instead of seeing their need for God. Because remember, it's not against the rules in the Old Testament to love people. All those ugly views they had about the Gentiles, no one was commanding that. They were just living it. And Jesus corrected this as the perfect law follower in his life. Remember, Jesus spoke and ate and healed the worst of sinners, Jew and Gentile. Jesus told stories about Samaritans, the foreigners, being the hero. Jesus corrected the abuses of the law constantly, especially when it led to self-righteous thinking. If you want to become an expert in hate, become self-righteous first. Then hate becomes the easy part. Hate sure is easy when you think you're better than someone else. Christ made peace by ending these two groups, by ending the law, fulfilling it, and raising it to a heart level, but taking the law out of the center of the faith and putting himself, putting his ways, putting his gospel, and making a new identity together where once there were two groups of humans, Jews and Gentiles. Of this room, we're almost all Gentiles. He made one man. And the gospel brings us together as this one new people, together as one body. Our identity as Christians becomes our primary identity. Galatians 3.28 says it this way. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Our ethnicity, our gender, Our economic status, our age, our skin is no longer our primary identity. The world is wrong. Our politics are wrong. But rather, being in Christ as one of his followers, that's what defines you now first. The truest thing about you isn't even your name. It's that you belong to Jesus and your name is graven on his hands, so the scriptures say. The other pieces of our identity still matter. We don't ignore them. That's a real part of who we are. But they're just not primary like the world says it is. By redefining our identity as God's forgiven people, it kills our hostility towards others. When we realize how much we're forgiven, we realize the person we're mad at They're either going to be forgiven or judged one day. And we ain't their judge. And we're not their savior. Jesus is one and the same. And our hostility starts to fade. As Christians, we can freely forgive. Now, reconciliation, that's a process. Restoration, building back an even better relationship, that's a process. But it starts with forgiveness, and forgiveness isn't optional for the Christian because we've been forgiven. So when those Ephesian Christians showed up to eat a couple fish and hang out and start talking, it had to start with forgiveness, and then we can work through the rest. Amen, church? Because their identity was Jesus first. That's why Jesus can tell us to love our enemies and embrace those different than us. It's not just possible. It's the very way of Jesus. Remember, Jesus was killed by mankind as he's dying to save them. 
He gives us a way, a new way of living where Jesus brings peace with God, where we have the same access to God the Father by the Spirit. And we must remember Jesus is cross-cultural to us. Jesus was a brown-skinned, dark-haired, Aramaic-speaking man from the Middle East. To embrace any of us in salvation, unless that's your exact heritage, he is crossing cultures. We don't think about Jesus in a real body, do we? He's crossing cultures to speak to us, to save us, and to be in relationship with us. Jesus is walking out that peace physically, spiritually, metaphysically to us. Jesus is going, we are not told to go anywhere that Jesus isn't leading us first. It is the Lord who takes those steps. And we follow our Lord. Jesus' church, every person deserves respect, honor, love, friendship, service. And as James 2.9 says, no favoritism is to be allowed in God's church. So here's where I want to add a little practicality. These are big, powerful, explosively good ideas. But I want to talk about living out that peace that Jesus has bought in a community, in everyday life. And I got three things with us of what peace means. Peace means we have soft pillows in our conversations. Peace means we got soft pillows in our conversations. When I wrestle with my kids, you know what I do? I take some pillows off the couch and I put them on the floor because inevitably T-Bone's flying off the couch and he's going to whack that hardwood floor. If I don't put some pillows down, we're going to have an emergency room visit because he gets fired up. Listen to what Ephesians 4 tells us, Christians. Let all bitterness, let all wrath, let all anger, let all clamor, let all slander be put away from you along with all malice. Sounds like we're taking out the hard floor. Be kind to one another. Look at this word. You kidding me? Tenderhearted. Tenderhearted. Forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. If we're going to talk about differences in generations, if we're going to talk about economic issues and economic differences, we're going to talk about race and ethnicity issues and justice. And you're a Christian. Put the pillows down for your brothers and sisters. Don't make them walk on eggshells. Don't make them clam up in fear. If they say the wrong thing, they're going to get smacked. We're not here to crush each other, but to help each other grow. That means we still speak the truth, but we do it in grace, just like our Lord. So put the pillows down. That's part of peace. Peace also means listening well to one another. Listen to James 2.19. Understand this, my dear brothers and sisters. You must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. I tell my kids this all the time, and it's good advice for me. I have two ears, but only one mouth. And I talk all the time, so I need to listen even more. It's okay to listen and learn. It's okay to take your time and not talk quickly. To not let your anger grow quick. Proverbs 17 says, if a fool keeps his mouth shut, everyone will think he's wise. That can be your sneak attack. 
If you're having a hard time, it's not time to lash out on social media or to raise your voice or even have anything to say. Speak up for what's good, right, and true, but it would be a good lesson to say if I took twice as long to listen and learn, I might have something really good to say. That's what peace does. It listens to each other and thinks about our words. Third thing that peace does, it means solidarity with one another. Galatians 6 says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, that is to love one another, for each will have to bear his own load. And church, this is crucial because we sometimes we keep love in the abstract and I want to keep it right here on the ground, on the tiles of our, our basement here. You are called to bear the burdens of others, both personally, but also corporate things. If the boomers in our church are concerned about something, we don't say, okay, boomer. If the boomers are concerned, then Gen Z and millennials and Gen X need to be concerned with them and bear that burden. Likewise, if the poor in our congregation, the middle class in our congregation, if the wealthy in our congregation are concerned about them, everyone else needs to be concerned too. That's bearing a burden. If our Spanish-speaking members are concerned about something, that means our black members, our white members, our everybody members need to be concerned about something too. We all have to bear our own burdens, but we don't have to bear them alone. And that's what an actual peace looks like, where we don't just go do our own thing, but we're full of empathy. We're listening well. We have soft pillows for the conversation so we can actually get somewhere. And that's what being a peacemaker feels like. People Jesus says are blessed in Matthew 5. He says, blessed be the peacemakers. Do you want to be blessed? I know I do. I want to live out the peace that God has bought for us. That's how the Ephesian church did it though they hated each other formally, hated each other 10 minutes before receiving the gospel. That's how the Jerusalem church did it. Because remember in Acts 2, the spirit of God falls and it converts people from all different backgrounds and nations. The first church of God was a multi-ethnic church. They had to jump into this from the jump. It was sermon one. It says there's a thousand converts. They became a multi-church mega church in a moment. And it didn't go that well. If you keep reading by Acts 6, things are already off the rails. So when we talk about the early churches, like, oh, if we could just get back to early church, if we could just do this, if we could just, if we could just meet in a house, it's like, we met in a house, we did it. You know, like, we did it. You get too many kids, you need some stuff, you need some more space to let worship talent grow. There's a lot of reasons we're not in a house. But Acts 6 details the problem. The Bible doesn't shy away from people's sinfulness and the problems. Look what Acts 6 says. Uh Uh-oh, the believers rapidly multiplied. Good. But there were rumblings of discontent. Not good. Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers. Notice they complained directly about another person. Not even about the problem, they're complaining about people, but they're right to speak up, saying that their widows 
Remember, there's no social safety net. You ain't going to care for each other. You just die. That their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. So some widows were getting taken care of, those who spoke Hebrew, those that spoke Greek, maybe from further parts of the empire, not from this Israel area as much. They weren't getting the food they needed. It's a serious issue. The problem hits. Do they give up? Do they panic? Do they quit? Do they keep pointing fingers? No. As you read on in Acts 6 and 7, the leaders listened to the issue. They prayed. They reasoned through it. God has given us minds to problem solve. If you want to be a great team, solve some problems. You want to be a great marriage, solve some problems. You want to have a great friendship, solve some problems. You want to be a great elder team, solve some problems. They reasoned and worked through a solution. And for them, the solution was appointing deacons, many of Greek background, you can tell by their names in the text, for better representation in the leadership, and then ensure a more equitable process. And they fixed the problem, and we're on to not endless success, but the next problem to work through and grow up together. What if we viewed as a church and in your life, every problem in your life isn't just a problem. It's actually the pathway for you to grow. There are more false teachers out there trying to get you to wish away your problems. And I'm telling you, read the Bible. It's going so bad for Paul, people doubt he's called by God. Like, dude, you're like shipwrecked and in jail. Like, dude, you are too much. And Paul's the number one missionary of the Bible. Your problems are the path that God wants to walk with you, holding your hand and maybe just picking you up like that Jesus in the sand picture and walking you down the aisle of that problem. Run to your pain. Don't run away. This is where the good stuff starts. We follow a Savior who died in pain for us. And this matters because God is building a grand, multi-ethnic, eternal church. Look at verse 19 with me. So now you Gentiles, you know what the word right there is? It's ethne, all ethnicities. That's Paul's word for Gentile. He just calls them ethne. It's everybody but the Jews and Jews included. So you now, so now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. No longer. You are citizens. What a good name for a church. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people of all time. Gentiles, Abraham's yours now. David is yours now. All the saints of old. Ruth, she was a Moabite. She's always been yours, Gentiles. And now that's the fam. You have eternity shining down on you going, you're here, the gospel we wanted, the gospel hinted at throughout the Old Testament that the Gentiles get Jesus too. It's happening, baby. And all of God's holy people, you are members of God's family. Once you were far away and now you belong in the house. You belong in the house together. We are his house built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. If you belong to Christ, you belong in God's house, both this eternal church, but God's local church. Don't be a stone alone in a field. That's weird. Be in the house. We are carefully joined together in him 
becoming a holy temple to the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by the Spirit. Paul starts with saying, we tore down that so reg, that weird little wall, and now you got a place in the temple. You've brought drawn near to God, and you're not leaving. You belong here forever and ever. Paul started this passage saying, Gentiles were hopeless without God in the world. We were desperate. You need, we need to acknowledge our desperation. There's not like four escape plans to God. There's just one in Jesus. Yet because of the gospel, all ethnicities are no longer outsiders, but insiders in the gospel. The wall is down. If you're in Christ, if you're a believer, you're not a stranger or a foreigner. Extend, you belong. You're a citizen with all people of all time who've worshiped Jesus, worshiped Yahweh. There's no second-class citizens. There's no third-class citizens. It's all people of all nations are welcome. And we stand equal in our identity as citizens of the kingdom. We stand equal and included as God's family. We stand equal stones of the house because God is building a grand multi-ethnic church stretching from 33 AD right into eternity. Jesus is doing it all over the globe today. And I believe he's doing it right here in Birmingham too. Amen. The sins of man cannot stop Jesus from his mission to build a beautiful multi-ethnic bride. His love is greater than all of our hate and all of our history. And I want to be a part of that, don't you? I don't want to do anything to get in the way of that. Do you? I don't want to live for the idols of racial identity or racial superiority or comfort or power or control or even approval. Why? Because we've been released from the ways of the world per Ephesians 2. And I want Christ to be my first and foremost identity. And church, we have a beautiful church. I can't wait to see it grow and grow in its beauty. United by Christ and united doesn't mean uniformity. Instead, unity in Christ allows for beautiful diversity in every way. We're not trying to conform and make us all the same. We're just conforming to Jesus, but we want to be who we are, and we can be a beautiful mosaic of Imago's day, Imago days placed by God in this picture. Look at this mosaic. Now, I'm cheating because your pastor happened to go to Ephesus this summer. This is the floor of the house in center of town. Can you see it? That the goal of the mosaic God is building is for you to be a blue tile or a red tile or a light tile or a dark tile or a red tile and that you're to fit together to build something more beautiful and bigger in the unity of the design. The diversity and unity work together in a harmony that makes something far greater than anyone alone. That's what God wants to build. He built it in Ephesus. He built it in Jerusalem. He built it in Antioch, as you keep reading Acts. Antioch, the Romans gave up putting forts there because the race riots are so bad, they burned everything down every couple years. But yet God's church succeeds and becomes the first multi-ethnic missionary powerhouse church. Same place. But as Ephesians 2.10 said, we have been saved and now given good works to do. In church, we got work to do. We got work to keep going with. 
If we're going to cultivate a diverse community of disciples who belong to Jesus and seek Birmingham's good, we have work to do. And I want to borrow a phrase from the black church tradition in John 16. Let's borrow. It's time to make it plain. All right? It's time to make it plain. Here's the works we must do. First is we must continue to be desperate for the gospel. Your heart is simply not ready to build a multi-ethnic church unless you are desperate for Jesus first. You will become puffed up and self-righteous or give up hope and lawless quickly. Let being a citizen of heaven, a child of God, a stone in the house, be your primary identity. If any identity comes before that, let's say being white, being rich, then, when, then you will always be in conflict when the gospel asks you, calls you to live for Jesus's family, not that identity. If you put any other identity in front of being a Christian, every time the gospel calls you to live something against that identity, you will be in conflict. And it's that simple. You cannot serve two masters. Jesus says so in Matthew 6. Second, as citizens church, we're going, to ha- we're going to continue to be intentional about diversity as an organization. We can't make diversity happen any more than we can make salvation or baptism happen. But we can be intentional to preach the gospel, which leads to salvation and baptisms. And in the same way, we can be intentional about pursuing a diverse church too. And this intentionality is a lens. It's not like, here's a couple solutions. It's more a lens that you make every decision from from preaching to leadership to where we gather on Sunday to how we do discipleship to groups to how we introduce ourselves online to how we go about mercy ministry and outreaches to how we create structures down to how we go about hiring. Right now, we are intentionally growing in worship engagement is one of those focus points where we put on that lens and say, what's best for our church? It's to grow in deeper and more lively engagement in the worship of Jesus to make space and room for everybody. Amen? But it's bigger than just making good or wise decisions. Because our elders and our church, we've realized in planning here that we need new soil to cultivate with. The soil in Birmingham is poisoned by racial hate. And it's been brought on by the evil of white supremacy. We have a long, ugly history in Alabama and in the city of Birmingham of the suffering of black and brown people endured through slavery, Jim Crow, racial terror of violence and lynching, segregation, civil rights struggles, housing discrimination, divestment, inequalities in the justice system, media discrimination, etc., and the everyday racism and prejudice that still persists. And we would be unsober to not think this has a direct impact on the ability for multi-ethnic churches to thrive in Birmingham. It does. We're starting with an awfully negative ledger of a lot of racial hate. So we must cultivate a new soil together. If the soil won't produce the crop we want, then we must build new soil together to get the fruit we desire. Amen? So I'm asking you to build the beautiful, united, diverse church. Here are some steps we need to take and keep taking. 
I ask you to follow your elders' lead in these three ways. There's education, there's experiences, and there's engagement. In education, we must keep learning on ethnic and racial issues, and we've bought two books for you to that end. One you might be familiar with, Pastor Dahadi Lewis is a great book. Almost every of the early people who founded Citizens read this book, and it's a great time to revisit it. We have free copies in the back, or to read it for the first time, where he lays out a biblical argument of how reconciliation works. He lays down God's heart for it and how to start and go about it. It's a great first book. Second, we bought another book for our whole congregation. It's called United by Trillia Newbell. This book is a next step book. It is more intense. It gets more into her story. There are stories and passages and words that are probably triggering, but I think it's important to do for two reasons. One, to help our black and brown members continue to process their life and process their church experience. And for white members to grow in much deeper empathy and catch a much deeper vision of what a multi-ethnic church truly takes and looks like lived out. Both books are under 200 pages. I did that because I know not everyone's a big reader, but I'm going to be honest with you. Social media takes aren't going to cut it. They sound good, they move fast, but that is not the depth needed to engage these issues thoughtfully and humbly and grow slowly over time. You have plenty of time to read them, We will discuss them in our community groups in January, but September, you got plenty of time to dive into one or both books. You don't have to be an expert, but we come to these as a learner that we must till up some new soil, both in ourselves and as we discuss as a community. Amen? Second way is experiences. And these pop up all the time, but the one I want to draw attention to you to build new soil will come on Saturday, November 12th. Mark it down. We're taking a church-wide trip to Montgomery. We're going to visit the National Monument for Peace and Justice and the Legacy Museum. This is an extremely powerful exhibit, if you've been, even life-changing. Brian Stevenson is the one who created Behind Equal Justice Initiative. He is a committed Christian, wrote the book Just Mercy, and it shows the 400 years of racism in our country and how it's ongoing need to address it. And this is our history. We can't change the past, but we can be informed. We can learn. And with sober understanding, move forward and change. And so citizens are going to pay for all of it, all the admissions, all the lunch, all the snacks, all the deal. But it's something we want to do together. We did it two years ago, and it was a sobering time. I think about about the half hour of silent reflection where no one had anything really to say other than to soak it in a bit. We'll do discussion ongoing afterwards. Sign-ups will be in the newsletter this week, and details will come. But the last piece is engagement, and this is the most important part, that on this issue, on this opportunity, you must engage with God and others in prayer and action. Pray for the unity of our church and its diversity. Pray until you're hot for it like God is. And if deep down you're kind of like, I'm not hot for it, I'm really struggling to to care or whatever, that's a good time to start bringing that up to God. Why? Now's the time. Don't delay. 
Start praying until you're hot for it and marry that with action. Because it will be a choice to say, will I diversify my life? Citizens will never be perfectly diverse. That's a moving target, whatever that would be. I don't know when we'd like arrive at that place. Rather, it's a long, steadfast pursuit, just like discipleship, just like community. That's stuff we're going to keep building, keep learning, and keep doing. But my goal is to make your life integrated. If church is a people, not a building, then Sunday is a reflection of our friendships, our life Monday through Saturday. People don't just choose to segregate on Sunday. They live largely segregated lives, and Sunday reflects that. We must choose action to cross worldly lines of class and age and color to make real friendships, and that's a choice. Who do we take to coffee or grab a beer or have around our dinner table? That's a choice, and I love the choices we've made, and I want to spur you on to keep making that choice. Whoever the, you're tempted to other, to say, no, I know that we are equal in Christ. We're united by his blood, and I want to have friendships all across the city, all across every area of my life, that the Lord would be with us. It takes thoughtful action, because I don't want to miss out on what I see as the miracle of what God's doing. I see God making us one new people, one body, week by week, month by month, and now year by year. When other pastors, both white and black and Latino, hear what's happening in our church, they are blown away. That's my regular experience. It may seem ordinary or common because it's an everyday life for you and every week, but you know why they're blown away? Because usually church plants are uniform in age. Everyone's about the same age, and everyone's about the same income and everyone's the same ethnicity. And if they're lucky, the church matures over time and grows slightly more diverse, but usually in a minimal way and kind of settles in for the next 50 years. That's the typical trajectory of a church. And to truly be off to a good start, a start, not finish, in diversity, community, discipleship, mission, reputation in Birmingham is amazing. It's uncommon. I would say it's holy. And I want you to recognize the slow-moving miracle we have going and to choose not to pat ourselves on the back, but instead to say, I have a responsibility to steward this. I got an oar in the water that I need to pull and I want to pull towards a future that I know God wants for you personally and us corporately. And here's something I think about all the time. Think about your kids. What future do you want to gift them? Think about the legacy of your life. What do you want to thank God for in 10 years? What do you want to thank God for in 20 years? I want to thank God for this moment and the next 10 years of everything God does. I want to row with you. It's been two years publicly, but I'm excited about the 20. Can we give our kids the next step in a beautiful future with a beautiful church? Do you want to give yourself away to something bigger in yourself, not just in theory, but in practice? Let's live out what Jesus has paid for in blood, peace with God, 
in peace with one another.